Once more, I'm really uh, uh, honoured to be given an opportunity to make uh, a contribution as part of our celebration of the birth of our continental organisation, the African Union, the successor organisation to the OAU. We're celebrating 20 years of the African Union this year, and of course as we think about it, we must also think of the philosophical underpinnings of our African uh, thought, and particularly look at that philosophy that influenced African uh, political ideology, Pan-Africanism. I cannot overemphasize the relevance of this theme to this seminar and to the whole idea of the renewal of Africa. So essentially what we're trying to, to talk about is Pan-Africanism in the current times. I really look forward to the panel discussion on the theme and also on ideas on how this philosophy can be sustained and whether it should be sustained in contemporary times and how we might take it forward and bequeath it as an ideal to uh, future generations. Pan-Africanism was born out of an intellectual contestation of ideas by Africans both on the continent as well as in the diaspora during the early parts of the uh, 18th and 19th century. These contested ideas evolved from reflections about racism, about empowerment, and then became somewhat of a global movement from a very narrow consideration about the effects of racism and how a community or society might respond. It grew into a, a philosophy of global uh, influence. As you would all know, it was initially a response to the evil of slavery, to imperialism and its effects, to colonialism and racism all of these having been visited upon Africans and African people, African uh, descendants of Africa who were in the diaspora, not of their own will, and found themselves in very negative conditions. The development of uh, intellectual thought on Pan-Africanism began really to circulate in that late 18th century early 19th century period, particularly in the United States, led by thinkers such as Marin Delaney, Alexander Crummel, and Edward Blyden. They all held the view that black people could not prosper and would not prosper alongside whites who had previously oppressed them, and so they advocated the idea that Africans should separate themselves from the United States and establish their own state in Africa. You'll recall that back to Africa movement of, of the early negritude ideas. In the early 20th century, these ideas were embraced and further developed by intellectual thinkers such as W.E.B. Dubois and Marcus Garvey. Garvey championed the cause of African independence with an emphasis on the attributes of black people's collective past, 
In fact, when you, when you read the writings of Garvey, you have this assertion of Africanness as a constant and a reflection back to Africa as an important resource for black people. But eventually there began to be almost a negative response to Garvey because of that back to Africa notion. Because those Africans that had been settled in America felt they should make their place uh, in the space in which they found themselves and regarded it as not a executable notion, the idea that you go back to Africa and establish yourself as a state that would then ensure the empowerment and the advancement of previously uh, enslaved uh, persons of African descent. Dubois was credited as the true father of modern Pan-Africanism. To the extent that to a great degree his name became synonymous with this philosophy and this movement. He spent a great deal of his life studying on the continent. And some will recall his famous speech, speech the problem of the color line in the 20th century, which set out his thinking on these matters. I was more influenced by uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' essay on the talented 10th, uh, which really speaks to you, university students and academics, and the expectation that the African intelligentsia had about the role that educated Africans would play in advancing the status and development of African people. But of course, all of us know the issue of the color line and this being the key problem to be resolved in the 20th century. And you remember the soul of black folks, which was an extensive account of the condition of black people in slavery in America and the Caribbean and the condition in which they found themselves once they became free of slavery also devoted a great deal of attention in this set of articles on the challenging legacy of racism. He recognized, and this is what is really for me intriguing about Dubois, that there wouldn't be an overnight change to the condition of black people. That it would take many decades of a great deal of hard work, of redressing self-consciousness, of addressing attributes of really focused education over time you then would have a change but it wouldn't be an immediate and the notion that after oppression and racist colonialism you are immediately able to change your condition upon achieving freedom is a notion that was challenged by W.E.B. Dubois and dealt with in huge detail he served as an academic at Fisk University and later, you know, at Wilberforce and Atlanta University where he ended up lecturing. As a thinker who understood the importance of transforming theory into practice, Dubois was one of the organizers of the first Pan-Africanist conference that took place in Paris in 1919. 
and it was followed by a second congress in 1921, just two years later, which was a very celebratory Pan-African conference because it was post the end of the First World War and there was huge anticipation with the Versailles Treaty that something would change fundamentally in the world. The uh, conference grew from a Paris setting in 1919 to a three-city set of sessions two years later in London, Brussels and Paris. He believed very much in black action to address the residue of racism and believe that educated African could play a critical role. Amongst the participants in these conferences were African students studying in Europe at the time. And the deliberations had a profound impact on their own political consciousness about Africa. Most of them eventually became leaders of liberation movements in their own countries on their return to the African continent. Amongst the earliest proponents of Pan-Africanism from our own continent were prominent South Africans, Charlotte Mahomu Makwege. I'm glad that I have a woman to mention, <laughs> Deputy Vice-Chancellor, and Dr. Pixley Isaka Seme. Seme was also one of the founding fathers of the African National Congress. Both he and Mema Kleke spent time studying in the United States of America. And during their time there, as very young and uh, impressionable students open to new ideas, they became among the first Africans from Southern Africa to interact with the intellectual movement of Pan-Africanism. As a student at Wilberforce University, at the time when Dubois taught there, Matlake could not escape the infectious pool, uh, pool of Pan-Africanist ideals that were shared by Dubois, who became her mentor and teacher. And she brought much of his ideas back to South Africa. You would recall that with the establishment of Wilberforce University, Dubois and others working with him had been thinking about how do we create institutions that offer real opportunity for skills and education to black students. And in the end they said we must establish our own institutions. But the interesting, perhaps negative or difficulty, was that much of their thought about the institution was how you train young people to earn a livelihood rather than the highest ranks of intellectual endeavor. And so it was very vocationally and technically focused education. Nevertheless, those institutions made an important contribution to the education of young black Americans at that time. And this notion that we can run our own educational establishments that will create a different kind of personality is of course a debate we have here in South Africa and I don't know if we have succeeded I think one of the better successes for me is UWC and I'm not saying that because you're here uh, uh, Professor Mkume Zulu it's because I do know uh, that uh, 
UWC doesn't have a problem with the notions of excellence or quality when sometimes we see them as counterposed to empowerment. And I think Dubois and their ilk thought in that way about institutions they sought to create. So, 700 kilometers away from Wilberforce University, at the very senior halls of Columbia University in New York, a very different institution from Wilberforce, a 25-year-old South African student, Pixley Saka Seme, delivered what was considered a seminal speech entitled The Regeneration of Africa. The speech was so impressive that he won an oratory award for it, the Curtis Medal from the University of Columbia. In essence, the philosophy he spoke about, the regeneration, promoted a belief in self, in Africanness, and put forward the view that Africans need to take charge of their destiny. He also called in the lecture for African institutions of learning, using African curricula in focus, and taught by learned Africans. It was in this speech that Pixley Kaseme articulated the ideas of Pan-Africanism, repeating the influences that he had gained from academics such as Dubois. It's also vital to mention that his speech apparently inspired African revolutionaries such as Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana. Know this because in December 1962, at the first International Congress of Africanists in Accra, Ghana, Nkrumah quoted Seme's oratory lecture in its entirety, not a paragraph, the whole lecture. Chief Albert Lutuli also spoke on some of these matters. He said the following when receiving the Nobel Prize Award in 1961 in Oslo, Norway. This award could not be for me alone, nor just for South Africa, but for Africa as a whole. Africa presently is most deeply torn with strife and most bitterly stricken with racial conflict. How strange then it is that a man of Africa should be here to receive an award given for service to the cause of peace and brotherhood between men. There has been little peace in Africa in our time. From the northernmost end of our continent where war has raged for seven years to the center and to the south, there are battles being fought out, some with arms, some without. Our continent has been carved up by the great powers. Alien governments have been forced upon the African people by military conquest and by economic domination. Strivings for nationhood and national dignity have been beaten down by force Traditional economics and ancient customs have been disrupted and human skills and energy have been harnessed for the advantage of our conquerors. In these times there has been no peace 
there could be no brotherhood between men. You may wonder why my remarks are focused on this history. It's because I would like you to extract from what I'm saying the attributes that came to make up the thought of Pan-Africanism. And each of these speakers are reflecting their thought on that. Ninety years later, ninety years after Semi spoke at Columbia University, the opening lines of his speech, I am an African, and I set my pride in my race over against the hostile public opinion. Ninety years later, they were echoed by then-President Thabo Mbeki, Deputy President Thabo Mbeki, during the occasion of the adoption of our new South African constitution in our parliament right here in Cape Town. I wonder which of what we say 90 years later will be used by others. It's quite incredible. <laughs> the same ideals underpinned the African Renaissance philosophy, which was later adopted as central to South Africa's foreign policy towards the African continent. Working toward the renaissance of the continent continues to be the lodestar of our own diplomatic activities on the continent. The intellectual influence that the founding fathers of Pan-Africanism had on South African students was so profound that they later sought to transform these ideas from theory into practice. And you'll find these underpinnings in many, many sectors that you might pay attention to. For example, look at the last statement of the outgoing rector of Forte University when the extension of University Education Act was passed and how he laments the effect of apartheid education on their intentions in establishing a Forte where all students of all colours could come together and study, led by competent academics and intellectuals. This notion that we can do things better and for ourselves. When these Africans who were influenced overseas completed their studies abroad, they came back and fought the horrendous injustice of the apartheid system which sought to treat black people as foreigners in their own land. Seme, of course, became one of the first conveners of the famous conference that founded the ANC in Mangaung in 1912. And as I've said previously, some of you might be aware that Charlotte Mateke was the only woman at that founding conference. And the conference spent over two hours debating whether a woman should be allowed to stay at that founding conference. And it was people like Seme who knew Matlega who in fact argued that she had a right to be present and eventually the decision was she could be there as part of the founding members of that conference in 1912. Very interesting on how women were observed. So of course we have a strong African nationalism which informed the initial formation of the ANC in 1912. But you also know 
that that strong nationalism was later transformed toward a national movement which developed a broader identity and membership. And that's what led to the schism between the ANC and the emerging Pan-Africanist Congress. So with the end of apartheid in South Africa, we've had a new energy and new ideals of Pan-Africanism, both theoretical as well as practical. The new government articulated a new vision for Africa, informed by the notion of an impending African renaissance. The OAU and then the AU portrayed the organization and still does as a pan-African one, ready to fulfill the continent's destiny using all available means. It is this resolve that has found expression in the Constitutive Act of the African Union, which states, we are inspired by the noble ideals which guided the founding fathers of our continental organization and generations of pan-Africanists in their determination to promote unity, solidarity, cohesion, and cooperation among the peoples of Africa and African states. I think that's one of the nicest, crisp definitions that I could find of what this might mean for us. So pan-Africanism, defined here in our act of the AU, meant integrated efforts to advance the development of our continent. I was reading a series of articles in a lovely book on Africa by the Mapungubwe Institute, and it makes a great deal in the various chapters of this notion of integration as being the core of what Pan-Africanists would like to see achieved by our continent. Kwame Nkrumah, speaking at the launch of the OAU in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia in 1963, said the following, the resources are there. It is for us to marshal them in the active service of our people. Unless we do this by our concerted efforts, within the framework of our combined planning, we shall not progress at the tempo demanded by today's events and the mood of our people. The symptoms of our troubles will grow and the troubles themselves become chronic. It will then be too late, even for Pan-African unity, to secure for us stability and tranquility in our labors for a continent of social justice and material well-being. Unless, that is 1963, we establish African unity now, we who are sitting here today shall tomorrow be the victims and martyrs of neocolonialism. And this wonderful collection of the Mapungubwe Institute says part of our problem at being unable to generate benefit out of the ideals of what one of the authors calls communitarianism rather than pan-Africanism, part of the problem is the nexus between our ideals and the clash with the practices of neocolonialism. And this is really what is causing the trouble that we face. 
Just five years before the launch of the Organization of African Unity, George Mills Hauser wrote in his report on the outcome of the All African People's Conference held in December 1958 in Accra, Ghana. A genuine Pan-Africanism was given expression throughout the conference. A new important dimension has been added. Whereas until recently, Pan-Africanism has always been a racial concept. Africa for Africans, meaning black Africans. Now a residential element has been added. Anyone living in Africa, white or black, could be part of the Africa of the future so long as the basic principle of democracy one man one vote is accepted. I'll simply put then how complex today. There's no question in conclusion that the South African struggle was inspired by the ideals of Pan-Africanism and that that philosophy heavily influenced the liberation movements in our country. Pan-Africanism as a philosophy found expression in what the ANC believed. And our former president Nelson Mandela espoused the vision of Pan-Africanism in a number of speeches and talks he gave. Our first democratic government was I think quick and seminal in adopting the symbolic Ngosi Sigelele i Africa, God bless Africa, as our national anthem. So our anthem is not about South Africa, it's about the continent. Today we have a foreign policy which is also inspired by the ideals and values of Pan-Africanism. And what we are now working at is the challenge of ensuring that these ideals are translated into tangible action so that all of Africa's people enjoy a better life and a prosperous future. So in conclusion, I believe that the ideals of Pan-Africanism continue to be important and that we need to embrace them as part of the armor and tools that we utilize as we seek to fundamentally alter the future destiny of our continent. And I hope it is young people who will take up these ideals. Thank you very much.